what caught my attention with this whole Glow Kids book, I guess, was your comparison to heroin or cocaine or, you know, these really highly addictive drugs, right? Because we wouldn't think of giving that in even small amounts to our children. And so some of these brain imaging studies began to show really similar neurophysiological effects to drug, chronic drug usage. So the, again, I mentioned before the prefrontal cortex, our decision-making part of our brain. That DGM, that dense gray matter for a chronic substance abuser begins to shrink over time. It, it actually atrophies. And so, as you mentioned really insightfully before, it becomes a double whammy. You're addicted to a substance. And now that part of the brain that might make you hopefully not be so impulsive towards that substance is broken. Okay, you guys, I have never been, this is, can I say this? This is my favorite interview we have done on the Now That We're a Family podcast so far. And I think it's because I feel so strongly about this, especially as we are raising children with a multi-generational vision. We need healthy children and for healthy families. And so this is something that is impacting the core of our kids. How we're using screens is not just a preference. It is so much deeper than that. And I feel like Dr. Cardaris does an incredible job of bringing to the surface so much of what's going on behind the screens. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> just came to me okay could you tell us a little bit about him sure okay i'll read uh the, the his bio from google books this is from 2022 so pretty pretty up to date yeah. it seems like i mean well i guess we're 2024 now so maybe i should have found a more current this is this is the most current one i could find dr nicholas cardaris is an ivy league educated psychologist one of the country's foremost addiction and mental health experts and the best-selling author of glow kids a former clinical professor at stony brook medicine he's developed treatment programs all over the country has written for time magazine scientific american salon and psychology today and has appeared on good morning america abc's 2020 cnn the cbs evening news PBS, NPR, Fox and Friends, and in Esquire and Vanity Fair. He lives in Sag Harbor, New York with his wife and twin sons. Well, so that's just a brief bio. You're obviously going to hear a lot more about him from the man himself. I do want to say, you know, we're Christians here. Katie and I, we haven't talked a lot about like our view of creation. We are young earth people. And he references evolution a handful of times. Just want to say, you know, that's something that we don't believe uh, in the way he views evolution and the, and the age of the earth and the way that we developed. I think he, he mentions that, you know, through the evolutionary process, we've become dependent on community and being a part of a tribe. I think that's the way God created us. That's what, that's what we believe. And that's what the Bible teaches. Um, again, I'm not trying to discredit anything he's saying, but that's an area where we differ. Again, the stats, the data he shares is so helpful to the to the home and to the family. We highly encourage you to get his books, Glow Kids, which we've talked numerous times about. And that what's his most recent book? Digital Madness. Yeah, Digital I'm Madness. Order that right now. <laughs> uh, and we'll link those below as well as his personal website where you can learn more about him. Folks, if you enjoy this podcast, please give it a thumbs up if you're watching it on YouTube or if you're listening to it on a listening uh, platform, maybe leave it a rating or a review. Katie, I forgot to tell you. What? I didn't realize. So I think because we don't have the Spotify app on sp smartphones, we're not able to view all the reviews, but we've got almost 500 reviews. Over. Did you know that? Wow. I was humbled because I didn't yeah, know that. That's crazy. I just thank saw that the so other much. day. So thank you all so much for doing that on Spotify and then on iTunes. Thank you for leaving ratings and reviews there. Um, with that said, we'll get this thing rolling. Just joking. One more thing today. 
Tuesday, the day that this is coming out, Tuesday is the last day for you to sign up for this quarter's growth initiative session. If you're interested, look below. You can watch the free webinar. You can go learn more about the course in the link below. Check it out. It closes tonight at midnight. Okay, wait, can I piggyback on that real quick too? Because the cheapest way to get the growth initiative and the Get It All Done Club is by purchasing them together. If you're going to buy each one of them separately, it's going to be around $700. If you buy both of them together, it's $400. So it's just the most affordable way to do it. So if you're going to do one, you might as well do them both. <laughs>
And so I really shifted my focus from I stopped teaching to be able to um, to really create programming to help create a solution to some of these issues to the extreme more extreme end of some of these issues. And then I wrote my most recent book, Digital Madness, last year, which really was sort of five years later. Where are we now that seemingly the society and my colleagues have caught up with me because now um, now the question's been asked and answered. Yes, this can be a real addiction. It's an official diagnosis now. But what is that? How has that shaped people? So, you know, I, I'm back to teaching. I still run my treatment programs. I'm a father of two 16-year-old twin boys, so I've got skin in the game as a parent. And um, and I work a lot with, there's a lot of, uh, which we could talk about during the course of the, the interview, uh, there's a lot of legislative initiatives happening right now, class action lawsuits against social media and the gaming industry that I'm involved with, where people are beginning to fight back and say, you know, here no further, you've done harm to our children intentionally and by design. And uh, so that's where I'm at. I'm, uh, I'm in the fight trying to... Uh, pump the brakes on our digital love affair and the damage that it's done to our kids more specifically. Yeah, I am shocked with how much data you have for this book written in 2016 because you have so many studies, you have so many case studies in there that are just shocking and I can't imagine the evidence that we have now, you know, 20 going into 20, well, we are in 2024 now. Um, yeah, I don't know. That just really stuck out to me. And you do, yeah. Me too, because there were over 200 peer-reviewed studies that I included. And so the studies were out there, but they were just under the radar. There were people, and, and there was a reason why they were under the radar. You know, the, the tech lobby is very strong and powerful, and there was a concerted effort to not really um, raise flags of, you know, there were canaries in the coal mine, certainly, but people were really not aware of some of this research. So that was really my goal to create a handbook for parents to be able to have it at their fingertips to say, no, here's, here's, here's the evidence supporting what my own eyes are seeing, right? Because that's what was happening. Most people who were looking were beginning to see that something different was happening. Yeah. You mentioned a few things when you're kind of introducing yourself that I kind of want to reference quickly you talked about, well, and just even now there being, you know, over 200 peer studies, peer reviewed studies that you could reference. And I think even in your book, you mentioned one of those out of the University of Washington that started back in the 90s in regards to TV consumption. You know, this was back before the internet was really a thing before, obviously, smartphones and devices. And I'm curious as to whether or not there's a, a unique challenge in diagnosing a, a particular problem with media because of the rapidity in which it is expanding, right? I mean, this think about how different things were back in the 90s versus now. And then within media, every every week there's a new app and then there's virtual reality and then there's a right. new type of video game. And now it's, it's social media and it's just movies. You know, it's just the graphics on which we're able to consume things. The, the quality is increased so much that the re, the, it seems so real. You can get so immersed in it. And is there a time that you can reference kind of in history, you already mentioned kind of in past, you know, well, you know, the industrial revolution probably wasn't a great time for a kid to, to be growing up. But can you reference a time when people were discovering the damage of maybe alcohol or you referenced, you know, heroin? Like, can we point back to a time in history before legislation got involved where we're like, oh, man, yeah, we didn't know what was going on. Um, or does media seem to be unique in the sense that it's moving so fast and so that the studies are always kind of it's like they're almost irrelevant by the time they are complete and they're and they're out to the public. Right. Well, I think there are two 
forces that could be helpful to kind of understand you because from a societal standpoint, you know, we went from steam engine to search engine in let's call it a hundred years or hundred plus some odd years. So from a societal standpoint, we've shifted the way that we live, um, you know, from agrarian to industrial to post-industrial to information age. And so what does that look like? So this is where a lot of the work where a depression researcher, which I referenced Dr. Stephen Alardi, he talks about that. There, there's a reason why we're more depressed than we've ever been as a society. We weren't meant to be as sedentary, screen staring, uh, meaning devoid. We weren't meant to be this way. And so if you also look at some of the work from the blue zones, you know, societies that have more longevity, they're living more organically to the way that we're um, evolutionarily have been designed to live. And so we've, we've begun to, to live in these very unhealthy ways, um, cubicle working, um, um, sedentary, as I mentioned before. So these are toxic ways to begin with. Now you sprinkle in the new gravitational pull of screen time. And, um, you know, and you're right, digital me or media in general has changed. And as I mentioned in Glow Kids, you know, there was always, I don't want to use the phrase moral panics, but, you know, Plato was concerned about the written word because he was afraid that, because we had been an oral storytelling society before then that people were going to lose their memory. And to some degree, that's true, by the way. You know, the more reliant we become on supportive technology, right? You don't know your multiplication tables as well if you start using a calculator more and more. Um, so it was two steps forward for technology, one step backwards for humanity uh, whenever there was a, a technical innovation. But as I mentioned in Glow Kids, you know, there was congressional investigations about comic books back in the late 50s. Superman was going to be the scourge of uh, kids. But what was qualitatively been different about this new emergent media, and we can trace it back to about 2007 and 2010 with the iPhone and iPad. Um, and I think this goes, this speaks to the problem of our being asleep at the switch about some of these issues was people of my generation, and I'm probably a, a little older than you both, um, but those of us that grew up on television um, conflated modern screen time with TV. And most of us thought, well, we grew up on TV, you know, even though there was some, there was some awareness that TV could be problematic. We sort of said, well, these are just smaller TV sets. What can go wrong? And, and the reality of it was that it was two qualitative differences. There were immersive and interactive in ways that television never was. So if we were watching television in the 1970s, or early eighties, you were a passive viewer of a, of a, of a visual phenomenon. Now our children are interactive participants in an immersive, hyper-immersive, hyper-arousing phenomenon. And now, as you mentioned, you know, virtual reality and, and augmented reality and innovations that keep changing, they're just making the, well, I would call it the harmful impacts more and more profoundly problematic. So, um, so research was out there with digital media back in the 80s and 90s. You know, they told us that, um, I remember being in high school and saying, uh, when I went to high school in the 70s, uh, they were saying by the time you graduated high school, you were going to have seen, it was something like 1,200 shootings on television. But these were like Starsky and Hutch and Bugs Bunny. I mean, they used to say Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner would, you know, these were digital media violence and that these could increase violence in children. But the difference was the realism. Nobody ever confused Wile E. Coyote with Grand Theft Auto and the realism of some of these new uh the experiences that our kids are exposed to. So that part happened really rapidly. Um, so we changed the society over the course of a hundred years. And then in the course of a 10 to 12 years, we've changed 
entirely in terms of the way we communicate, the way we process media, the way our brains are shaped in, in key developmental stages as children, um, the blink of an eye from an evolutionary standpoint. Yeah, something that stuck out to me when you were sharing case studies, one of the case studies you shared in the book was a young boy who went on like a strict treatment plan in order to help with his aggression and ADHD and all of that. And then when he added media back in, you specified that he still wasn't consuming video games or cartoons, even though he was watching some TV. And I'm curious, uh, you know, when we think of cartoons, usually we think, oh, these are programmed for kids. This is the best media that our kids can be consuming. Um, why no cartoons? Well, I mean, cartoons can be a little bit blurry now too, in terms of like there's anime and there's some cartoons that begin to sort of blur the lines with like sort of gaming. And, and, and part of it was the, um, even when you look at children's television, it's it's the medium itself the way that it's presented so i give the example of like mr rogers back in the day one long slow panning one camera and there he was zipping up his sweater and you know and and everything uh, visually was very slow and paced and so the child's attention was able to stay focused if you watch some of the nickelodeon programming whether it's live action or or cartoon it's the rapid cuts right it's the bells and whistles so the that level of stimulation is age inappropriate because it becomes so um, overly stimulating that the child becomes stimulation dependent. And that's what's driving, that's what I believe some colleagues and I also believe is driving the ADHD epidemic where we've seen a doubling of ADHD because children are getting so primed for these, um, these really um, stimulating experiences that they're not uh, age ready for yet. Um, where the best thing that a child can be doing neurosynaptically or neurodevelopmentally is playing make-believe. So they're using their active imagination, their neurosynaptic pathways for creativity are being formed. When the child is co-playing with another child and they're, they're, they're creating forts and they're creating whatever it is in their imagination, they're now creating neural pathways that are forming. And it's a process that begins to um, enhance their attention, being able to focus on the project and move forward. If a child is passively sitting in the crib, or I mean, God, I've seen some of these, I saw a uh, an infant stroller for newborns where the newborn is supposed to be sitting back in this little rocker within the screen is like three inches from their So face. sad. Educational was, was the, you know, the, some of these companies think they just throw the word educational in there and all of a sudden, okay, educational. And every parent wants to feel that they're educationally enhancing their kids, but what they're doing is they're stunting them developmentally and they're creating this ADHD profile where the kids now need stimulation to stay focused. And, and, and so that creates that ADHD profile, that high impulsivity profile. And, you know, one of the uh, best or worst predictors of bad outcomes for a child is impulsivity. And if you can't begin to nurture a child's uh, attentional abilities when they're young and you're putting them in front of all the stimulating screen time, you're creating a high impulse uh, profile lifelong. And that's, that bell is really hard to unring because you're, that's the temperament now for that child. Hmm. Yeah. Speaking to children and then versus adults, and this is actually a question that we got from, from one of our listeners. Uh, they said, is there a difference in the effects of children versus adults when it comes to just the amount of stimulation that we're, that we're receiving and maybe the difference being in what, what it's doing to our brain. Can you speak to that? Yeah. I mean, the biggest difference is, is where children are developmentally in terms of their brain functioning versus adults. And, and by the way, we're all getting affected and impacted as adults. 
all the depression research on social media um, via the social comparison effect, the more time you are on social media as an adult, the exponentially higher rates of depression there are because you're sedentary. Because two of the main drivers for things like depression, two of the biggest antidotes for when, when I treat someone, uh, it's physical activity and social interaction. And when you think about what screen time does is it makes you sedentary and it makes you um, not face-to-face -face interactive. So those two things drive up depression. So that can affect adults of any age. You could have a 60-year-old who is on Facebook or Instagram all the time who are isolated, alone, sedentary, depressed. But de developmentally for children, they're more vulnerable to these effects because they don't have a fully developed prefrontal cortex. That part of the brain that's behind our forehead that is the executive functioning of who we are. And some people call that the breaking mechanisms, um, but it's it's it helps us to consequentially think, if-then type of thinking. If I do this, then that'll happen. And that doesn't fully develop till we're in our mid-20s. So children just don't have the impulse control for arousing uh, things. That's why if you, if you put a six-year-old in a in a bakery full of candy they're going to eat the whole store because they don't have the break they don't have the impulse control where potentially an older person uh, and and an older people can struggle with some of these impulsive issues also but they have a more for uh more formed prefrontal cortex so these impacts are more impactful for children because their brain development isn't there yet and so we're giving these kids experiences that it, one study I mentioned Dr. Cope did a study back um, in, in nature, for Nature magazine that was a 1999, 98 or 99 study that looked at how dopamine activating certain experiences or products were. And it looked at things like food and sex and cocaine. And so food raised dopamine 50% and sex was 100% and cocaine was 300%. And at that time, they tested video games. And video games were, at that point, was 1998 video games, not today's. Um, it wasn't quite Pong or Pac-Man, but it wasn't today's uh, immersive realities either. And the video games were as hyper-arousing or dopamine-activating as a sexual experience. There were 100% dopamine spiking. So we're giving like a 12-year-old an experience that is as arousing potentially as a sexual experience, and they don't have the breaks to be able to moderate that. So when a lot of parents try to say, we're going to set time constraints on you, little Johnny or Susie, as you engage in this behavior, you're setting yourselves up for failure because a child just doesn't have the neurophysiological hardware to moderate that experience. They just can't. They, they just would do it more and more and more. Um, and so countervailing influences, sports, music, other activities, as you layer in slowly the screen time, because that's the thing that I found to be the best thing to do is to delay, delay, delay as much as you can. Uh, the use of individual screens like smartphones or tablets, let the child develop a little bit more before you drop the tablet into the proverbial crib. Yeah, and what I hear you saying is it's, it can be this negative cycle where these kids, it, when they're watching screens, it's impacting the, de de the development of their impulse control. And then they struggle with more impulse control. And this is something that if they're struggling with it as a three-year-old, six-year-old, 10-year-old, that potentially never develops well. And then they're 20, 30, you know, just so on as an adult they're still struggling with not being able to control their impulses you hit the nail on the head that's the one thing that i try to hammer the most is 
we're priming children to be lifelong impulse challenged because what you're doing now is you're compromising their ability to be able to not be uh, impulsive. And that part of their brain, it's like language. We know how language is a developmental window. If, if children don't learn language within a certain age, we've seen this in feral children where children aren't exposed to language until they're 13 or 14. That part of their brain has solidified. That's become already hardwired. So they become lifelong language compromised. So with feral children, they can never learn metaphor, syntax, they could learn some basic language, but that's it. That ship sails at a pretty young age. And it's the same thing with attention and creativity. If the child doesn't develop those things at, at those key developmental windows, it's, it's, I don't want to say the door entirely shuts, but it becomes much more challenging. So we're doing lifelong potential shaping if we unleash the digital hounds too soon into the child's world. But you wouldn't yeah. know that if you, you know, if you, if you drink the Kool-Aid or if you listen to our schools, right? Our schools are dropping the ages that they're giving screens out to. I've been battling. I, luckily, I speak at a lot of education conferences. And so there are educators that are getting a little bit more involved for public school systems that are understanding that you don't just, well, you know, but it, it, I, I found it had been almost like an educational arms race that District X, if they got chromebooks or tablets in eighth grade and district y had to get them in sixth grade and then fourth grade and then third grade and and the parents were asking for it you know one of the main things well-intentioned but ill-informed parents would ask the school district is what kind of technology do you have for our child and and they would be impressed if the child if the children were getting you know the most state-of-the-art equipment in um, kindergarten mm. but not that, but that's not ideal for the child as we know from educational research yeah, I think you do you refer to it in your book as like education being the Trojan horse for for media, where it's like it's just sneaking into people's homes, into schools under the banner of education. And and that is a question that I do have. And this is a questioner for, from another listener. It's kind of this concept of, well, if we don't give it to them when they're young, when they're older, they're not going to have this um, – this um, self-control, like they won't have, they won't know how to handle it. They won't be, uh, if we shelter them too much, they're just going to be knocked on their back backside because they're not going to know how to handle it. And so the question is, how do you help them develop self-control with devices if they never have them, you know, kind of speaking to your yeah. delay, delay, delay. Yeah, that, that, that's a great question and a great point, right? It's, um, but I'm remembering that that Hugh Grant movie about a boy, right? Where there, I don't know if you guys know, it's a it's a funny Hugh Grant movie where he develops a relationship with his neighbor's boy, and and the mother was very um, organic. You know, the mother had sheltered this kid, could never have fast food, and was re really raised in a very, um, you know, uh, I don't want to stereotype this mother, but but this child was very sheltered, and so the first time this child had the ability to go to McDonald's, he, you know, overly indulged in fast food and all those things. So I, I, I do get that idea that if you overly deprive on the front end, do you then create a rebound effect as that child becomes kind of more independent or goes into high school or, or college? Um, so I think, and what I've tried to do with my kids, because my kids are in that sweet spot where they're in adolescence right now, they're 16, my twins. Um, we, I didn't want them to be Amish until 18 because I didn't think that I would that would be serving them well as they ventured forth into independence because a lot of the clients that I treat in our treatment program they are exactly what you said they um, were overly sheltered or maybe helicoptered a bit when they were in high school then the moment they were independent in college and in the dorm room they stopped leaving the dorm room they just couldn't manage it at all and would stay on their computer all day all night and 
eventually would get expelled and would wind up back in mom and dad's basement. And then, you know, we'd have to treat them and try to unring that bell. So what I've tried to do with my own children is, you know, there's a wait until eighth movement where eighth grade, 13 years old, you know, um, my kids had a gab phone through middle school. So the gab phone, as you may or may not know, it's, it's a non-Wi-Fi compatible phone where you can text. You, you won't get bullied because it doesn't look like a flip phone, but it looks like a smartphone, but you can listen to music and text. So they had a smartphone for those transitional middle school years. And as they got into high, but they didn't have laptops or any um, personal computer. They, they had computer time, they had desktops in their school. Um, then COVID, COVID made kind of a mess of things because that was their eighth grade experience. Uh, but then, you know, now in high school, we've, you know, we have gotten them uh, as uh, they were sophomores when we got them uh, a phone, uh, a smartphone. And they're not on any social media and they don't game. But it was took a lot of work to make. I mean, they're, they're athletes, they, they play sports and they play music. And we had to really lean into exposing them to those things because that's, you know, the, the battle, the challenge is to, is to compete against these really seductive experiences. You know, these, these platforms are so engaging and they haven't been... Um, you know, because now it's their tribe. It's just our kids' tribes that they're living in. How does a, a how do you raise a low tech kid whose all their classmates are on their devices? So, my kids, I think, have had enough self confidence because they play sports that they're able to sort of like, you know, I've got my phone. You can call me, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do the whole Instagram thing. I'm not gonna do the whole all that other stuff. But it, it's not been easy. You know, it's been it, it's definitely much more work to be a tech cautious parent um, in today's world. But I think it's worth the effort. I think it's worth the uh, extra uh, labor that goes into it. Yeah, well, just getting them used to flexing that muscle of, hey, I'm going to be different and I'm going to develop confidence, like you said, in other things. It wasn't like we're saying no to media and also no to all these other experiences either. Like you're giving them incredibly rich experiences and developing the whole person. And so that they're very developed and capable when they're coming in contact with this high functioning technology, they, they don't, um, they know how to manage themselves. They know how to drive themselves. Right. You know, they have this character and all those things. So it's not just going to knock them straight on their back because I, I don't know. I just think a, I agree. I, you know. I agree with you. And, and I think it's it's funny because the parents that I work with for the young people that are in my treatment program, they're kind of both extremes. Um, some of the parents, I, I, I'm trying to watch my language here, might put them in the more negligent category where, you know, their kids had been just kind of um, not really that well supervised. And then the other extreme is the kids who have been overly um, micromanaged by their parents. And then the kids are using their digital devices as escapes, you know, because they feel like they're under the thumb of overly oppressive or micromanaging parents. And I've had a whole bunch of those clients, 18, 19 years old, saying the reason why I game so much, the reason why I'm I'm losing myself in YouTube videos is my mother or father are just right on top of me too much. And I'm very cognizant of that dynamic because it seems to be both extremes to seem to be not very healthy. Yeah, yeah, that's good. You talked about the competing nature of these ultra, I guess, you know, seducing forms of entertainment. And I think I've heard you cite a study, you know, that, that talks about 
you can, again, maybe you'll know what I'm talking about. Maybe you won't because I'm going to butcher this, but you can very high, you can kind of determine a kid's success based off of their reading capability and the volume that they read at a young age and get a kind of like conflicting study or maybe not conflicting, but one that, you know, does the, the, does a disservice to that fact is that media is one of the things that keeps people from reading. It's like the, the thing that keeps people from reading um, right there. So could you kind of speak to that? Yeah, the EOC. The, the, so they did two studies that looked at reading uh, competence at, in third grade or age eight, and then the love of reading by age 15. And those two things, I think it was over 150,000 students were looked at, were the best predictors of lifelong successful outcomes by whatever metric we measure successful outcomes for young people. So it was really reading was this really powerful predictor and driver. So reading competence and then reading love of reading. And so the love of reading and being able to nurture that became tantamount. Then the other study that you're mentioning, which in, and when I do my presentations, I cite these two studies together, you found that screen time crushes is a nuclear bomb on the love of reading. Um, the more screen time, the less a child likes to read. In fact, they found that screen time was, they were three times more likely to not enjoy reading. And then if you look at how many hours a day a kid reads from 1990 to 2000 to 2010 to 2020, that number has gone exponentially. Now it's, there are kids who are not reading at all for pleasure. Uh, where back in the um, 80s and 90s, there were, you know, even even quote unquote non-readers read, you know, because that's what you, what you did. Um, and so reading is so important. And when you think about it, it makes sense because think about what screen time does. I mean, reading takes concerted effort, focus, and attention. And if you're in these hyper-stimulating, you know, World of Warcraft, you know, worlds, um, good luck trying to read, you know, War and Peace. Uh, um, you know, Nicholas Carr, who wrote the book, uh, The Shallows, Pulitzer Prize nominated author, he writes about his attention span begins to wander after two pages. My attention span wanders and I'm, you know, I'm 59. Um, so I know when I'm, I'm working a lot with my devices and I've been engaged in any kind of digital media, it, it, it affects my ability to focus and to attend. And so I give the example of um, one way to think about it because now teachers are competing against this this stimulation of screen time so one way to think about it is like if you go and watch a really um adrenaline surgeon kind of action movie you know think of like any of the liam neeson taken movies or like a, a marvel movie that's car chase after car chase and an action scene after action scene and then all of a sudden good luck trying to downshift and sit down and read a book after you've gotten your adrenal system and your dopamine reward system activated it's not easy to downshift and do something like reading. So our kids have been overly stimulated. Their adrenal thermostats have been raised on high because they've been surrounded by screen time. And then we wonder why they're being diagnosed with ADHD and can't read more than two pages at a time. And that's, these are the countervailing forces involved. Yeah, you, when you mention, you know, at the beginning. user, You see basically two main effects are happening on their brain. Um, First is something called the DGM, the dense gray matter of their prefrontal cortex. So the, again, I mentioned before the prefrontal cortex, our decision-making part of our brain, that DGM, that dense gray matter for a chronic substance abuser begins to shrink over time. It, it actually atrophies. And so, as you mentioned 
really insightfully before, it becomes a double whammy. You're addicted to a substance. And now that part of the brain that might make you hopefully not be so impulsive towards that substance is broken. And so now you've broken that part of your brain that allows you to not be impulsive because it's it's shrunk. The second brain effect has to do with the myelin sheath, or it's also called the brain's white matter. The myelin sheath, if we visualize our neurons as as connecting cables, the myelin sheath is like an insulation cable. It's a white lipid fat that essentially coats all of our neurons. So uh, a healthy or robust myelin, a myelinated brain um, has really robust, uh, that white lipid is, is healthy. Uh, abnormalities, we don't have a healthy myelin sheath is things like, are things like dementia and Alzheimer's. Uh, the brain doesn't communicate well within itself. And, and and so what they found with chronic substance abuse is the myelin sheath begins to break down. And and so you're shrinking the gray matter, you're breaking down the myelin sheath. And so they did these brain imaging studies with screen time and they found the same effect of with both those things. The dense gray matter begins to shrink and the myelin sheath begins to break down. So people were shocked at this because they could understand, most people could understand, well, I... I could see how ingesting a substance can change my neurophysiology, but how can something that I'm viewing change my brain? And to that, all we have to say is we know that many of our experiences change our neurophysiology. We know that trauma changes the brain, right? So anytime we experience trauma, there's neurophysiological changes that happen. So it shouldn't be that hard to grasp necessarily, but when you see it in black and white brain imaging studies, this effect that's happening, uh, that was a wake-up call, I think, for a lot of clinicians that were a little bit doubtful about this whole thing five or six years ago. Yeah, I I love having that visual of what's going on in the brain, and I think that can be really helpful as a parent, knowing why I'm not having my child you know, sit down, watch something, just be engaged or whatever, and I don't have any thinking that I can do that without having any negative consequence. It's like putting them, it's like, okay, I am shrinking the gray matter, as they sit there, these things are happening. You're shrinking, shrinking the gray matter of the decision-making part of your brain and the part that regulates your impulse control. So yeah. I'm shrinking a very significant, specific part of your brain that's really important to you to be a healthy adult. Yeah, and I think that we just had anecdotal evidence to this when we took away screens from our children and just thought, wow, they're actually a lot easier to parent when we don't have these screens. Where, But you think it's opposite of that. You know, you think, oh, I'm going to get stuff done and have them sit and watch something or do something on a screen as the, you know, glowing babysitter. And then you just realize once they're gone, the children are actually so much easier to manage, so much more obedient, so much more respectful. And once you get past that initial irritable phase, right? Because it is. Yes. You do a digital There's detox a detox phase. Program, and most parents aren't willing to go through that, let's call it 48 hours, 72 hour period of it's like a withdrawal. Well, it is withdrawal. It's a stimulant withdrawal. So anybody who's ever tried to stop drinking coffee or any other kind of detox, you're going to get squirrely. You're going to get reactive, and there's going to be some volatility there. And that's what we see with our clients. The first two or three days, they're reactive, angry, uh, impulsive. But then that levels off, and then you get back to their baseline, and then you're able to do the work that we need to do from a treatment standpoint. But it's the same with kids. You know, Parents who have given the kids their devices and then realized got to take them away many parents aren't willing to sort of go through that uncomfortable one, two, three day period. And so they just say, all right, whatever. All right. I'll just accept it and move on. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, 
a while back, two of the, you know, kind of root causes oftentimes that you can identify anecdotally when it leads to depression is, is physical activity and then social interaction. And I've, I've heard you say kind of like this, this lie that maybe we've believed that we actually are getting more social interaction because of our devices, you know, that we are able to stay connected, but then you've gone on to say, no, this is, this is actually, it's, it's kind of counter to that. That's actually not the truth. And so can you kind of talk about the difference between in-person social interaction and then online interaction via texting or different apps where you're communicating with people? Yeah, so we're hardwired social animals. We need, so evolutionarily, we need social connection. And that was, you know, uh, sociologists use a phrase, the tribe survives, or the tribe survived. So being a close-knit uh, tribal uh, is part of our psychological DNA because we're not the strongest species, we're not the fastest species, but we we survived because we we stuck together and we were able to, you know, that banding together kept us alive. So that's been baked into our evolutionary DNA over a couple of million years now. So we need social connection. And social media has hijacked that impulse, that tendency for socialization. And it's even in the name, social media. So this must be a social good. And and I remember, you know, when social media was first being released to the masses, that was the great promise. It was going to be the great connector. It was going to connect people from all over the world. And and it was going to be like chocolate and peanut butter. This combination of social media for social species was supposed to be this wonderful elixir. And yet what we've seen is increasingly escalating rates of depression since the onset of social media. Social media has led to greater and greater rates of depression. And there's specific research that that points to the, the dynamic that dynamic it's not just because if you're on social media you happen to also be more sedentary although that that's a dynamic right because if i'm going to be sitting in front of uh you know facebook for eight hours a day being sedentary alone is you know you, we need physical movement as part of our evolutionary heritage but the social comparison effect was the big one that gets pointed to is it's it's i'm not quite creating that genuine relationship with somebody that that face-to-face where if I need to speak to a friend at you know three o'clock in the morning, phone call friend, you know, I'm creating, uh, I'm collecting uh, digital friends who are acting as reflective mirrors where their um, their social media profiles act as a reflective mirror to my life. And so we know that on social media, people aren't posting I'm having a terrible day. They're posting their vacation photos and their wonderful kids. And 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 so if I'm going through a rough patch in my life and I've got 500 Facebook friends. And I'm going through my news feed. Um, I'm looking at 500, 500 different um, idealized external selves of people, and it only makes it only amplifies my sense of uh, feeling less than. So the more, so they found that it was a direct correlation. The more uh, social media friends or contacts you had, the the more unwell you were, the more depressed you were. So it was like an inverse opposite effect of what what we were promised wow. originally. So, and that's why we have a lot of young people who are beginning to now just reject all that narrative. There are, there is a grassroots movement among some college students who are just saying, you know, they're, they're checking out of social media. They're not playing the game anymore. And we haven't even talked about the influencer effect, um, which I talk about a lot in my more recent book about what, how that's shaping young people's sense of identity, their sense of meaning and purpose, their sense of how, what's valuable and what's not. It's all influencer driven, which is its own other toxic stew onto itself. Hmm. Yeah, no. I mean, would you touch on that a little bit? Just like that whole influencer drive on social media? 
Well, yeah, yeah. So young people, as they're going through the transition of adolescence, you know, they're trying to find their sense of identity. You know, historically, we used to have the the stereotype of the the different tables in the school lunchroom, right? You had the jocks and you had the 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 musicians, or you had the you know the different cliques that would form in high school. And so young people are trying to find the sense of identity, and and that typically tends to form during adolescence. But now you have the so so there's there's two different things here. So now you have influencers from let's call it the the Kylie Jenner, the Kardashian type of toxic materialism influencers where, you know, junk values, what I like to call junk values, right? Where it's all about money and materialism and look at me type of uh, toxic value system. Then you have what I would call the psychiatric uh, influencers, the the young people, because let me take a step back. Um, the, the thing that has currency in social media is views and followers and likes. And what gets the most attention is the most shocking or the most performative um, people. So a thoughtful person having a reasoned discourse online or on the platform is going to get no followers, you know, but the performative over the top caricature is going to get the more likes and followers. And then that feeds that engine. So now you're having uh, young people who, or you're having influencers who are, who may or may not have a psychiatric issue. Um, but now they'll lean into that and they'll be performative about it. So here I'm talking about the TikTok Tourette's phenomenon, borderline personality disorder spikes, um, dissociative identity disorder, which we used to call that multiple personality disorder. You have young influencers who are allegedly struggling with these psychiatric issues who are creating YouTube videos or they're, they're going or TikTok videos and they're being very performative about their mental illness and now their followers are beginning to mimic some of their psychiatric uh, effects a lot of the clients that i work wow. with have struggled with that and when you take them off of social media their symptoms go away and this also includes gender dysphoria this also includes the whole transgender spike that we're seeing a four thousand percent increase in transgenderism in the last five to seven years that's not a, a natural that's not a, a phenomenon that you can explain by natural means other than what some of us have come to call the social contagion effect. So you're having young people who are impressionable and very, uh, very easily influenced who are now falling down different rabbit holes of influencers. So it could be if, if you fall down the rabbit hole of uh, a transgender group or a dissociative identity group, the dissociative identity group is wild. If you watch that, they call themselves systems. And so young person X will say that they have a hundred alters. And we know that historically when somebody genuinely had multiple personality disorder or just what's now called dissociative identity disorder, they typically suffered from sexual trauma as children and they created an alter identity to compartmentalize the identity that had been abused to be as a, it was a defense mechanism. And mm -hmm. typically you had maybe three or four or maximum five alters. So we had the movies, the classic movies, Sybil or Three Faces of Eve. Um, now you're seeing young people having over 100 alters across the LGBTQI spectrum. And what's really popular or what's really um, gets a lot of views is what they call switching. When system A is going to switch from one identity to the next, they're getting millions of views of teenagers who are watching this performative psychiatrically unwell person and now they're beginning to say well i've got some alters also or, or i have dissociative identity disorder or i have gender dysphoria and 
you're seeing this um, this psychiatric toxin spreading um, because people are looking for identity and they're looking for, and if you don't have a core sense of identity, you're going to absorb it through in your digital world. Um, and that's what we're seeing a lot of. Hmm. That's yeah. kind of, I mean, that's sobering. That's <laughs> honestly sobering. kind of terrifying. Yeah. And, and I, which is yeah. why I'm encouraged, I guess, even when I hear about your sons, you know, playing music, playing sports, being with people, life is a beautiful thing, but oftentimes we have to take effort to go experience it, you know? And I, th- and I, and I'm, I'm curious as to, again, you, you, you work with addict, with addicted pa- with patients, you know, in, in addiction. And what is that journey? You know, we were talking particularly to screens, but I'm sure there's a lot of people that cannot picture a reality nor want to picture a reality devoid of their screen time, right? Or devoid of their substance that they're right. using. And so again, not to get into the you know nitty gritty of your treatment here, but what are some first steps people can take? Because I think I've been there at different points in my life where you're like, I don't even really, what what's the point in living if I can't have this thing, you know? And so being able to right. break, break away that barrier to those baby and take those baby steps. That's why I've said in media interviews before, I've said that I think treating people that have crossed the line with screen time to really unhealthy ways, it's harder to treat than, than heroin addiction. Because a, a person could live a very healthy, happy life without heroin. They don't need it, and it's not part of the, it's not a socially acceptable, obviously, screen time. Um, the other main difference between substance addiction treatment and screen time addiction treatment is the identity behind substance addiction is a shame-based identity. Most substance addicts don't feel great about that. They're yay, I'm a heroin addict, I'm a level 114 heroin addict. That tends to be an identity that a person doesn't want to embrace. They want to shed that identity, typically. Um, With digital escapism, whether it's young clients that I've worked with who are gamers or social media overly involved, their, their digital identity is, oftentimes they're feeling disempowered, lost, empty, no sense of purpose, they're drifting in their lives, and meanwhile, now they find a digital realm where they can feel empowered, right? So if you're a gamer, you're leveling up and you're feeling a sense of accomplishment. So it's not a shame-based identity. It's a, actually, it's a rewarding identity. I analogize it to being like a violin virtuoso. Yeah, you're spending eight to 10 hours a day playing the violin, but you're really good at playing the violin and it gives you a sense of accomplishment. So a lot of our gamers feel, this is the only thing I'm, I'm good at and you're asking me to give this up? Well, yeah, because even the violin virtuoso, if now it's at the expense of a social life, their health, their functioning in the world, their academics, their their work life, yeah, maybe it is time to put down the violin if it's cost, if it's at the expense of everything else in your life. So that part of it can get really challenging. So then you have to say, you know, if you're escaping your day-to-day life because you feel disempowered, how can I make help you feel empowered and engaged? in your day-to-day life so that you don't need the digital escapism, that you don't need to uh, latch onto that in the ways that are unhealthy. Because I get it, you know, I, I, I wrote in uh, Glow Kids about a young man that I worked with who was on the spectrum and he had a really toxic household. Mother was mentally ill, the father was disabled. And and when he came into school his uh, freshman year, he uh, his parents had like, uh, they had pets and animals and it was literally like a pigsty in his home. Um, and he opened up his winter coat and three cockroaches popped out of his uh, coat his first day of school. So from that day on, he became known as Roach Boy. Um, and so horrible home life, taunted mercilessly at school. And so he found his escape and he played a game called Final Fantasy XIV, where, you know, the protagonist is a handsome prince who's 
conquering galactic universes. And I get it. I, I understood why this young man whose day-to-day -day reality was miserable would want to escape in a fantasy world because his real life wasn't attractive enough for him. And and so the challenge wasn't to tell him games are terrible and, and you know, games bad, but the challenge was to somehow reconnect him to a life that wasn't so untenable for him and it meant something for him. It had meaning because at the end of the day, this goes back to meaning and purpose. And most video games, if you notice, um, they really are the hero's journey baked into a, a video format. It's the young person has a, a quest or a call to adventure and they have to overcome certain obstacles. And then when they overcome those obstacles, they become empowered. Well, that's what that young kid is looking for. They're looking for empowerment. They're looking for an adventure. And if we can create that in the day-to-day -day world, then that becomes less attractive in the digital world. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Makes sense. Well, I want to honor your time, but if you could speak to one last thing um, before we sign off here and then kind of share about your your digital digital madness. I know you've referenced it a couple times. I've heard you, I guess I, I personally got sobered up when I heard you speaking kind of in passing one time in the rise of narcissism because of... Uh, just, you know, we, we call it the echo chambers or just kind of this at this, uh, this, these affirmations that we get nonstop. And when I was hearing about some of the characteristics that arise in people that are constantly being affirmed in what they believe, you know, and it's never challenged. It's never questioned. That seemed like there was two kind of like extremes. One, you walk around thinking, yeah, everybody thinks what I think. Cause that's okay. all I'm hearing. Or on the other extreme, you think like, I'm really special to think what I think. Like nobody thinks like me. I'm I'm really unique. And depending on what the voices are, those two things can, can lead to a lot of narcissism. And I'm curious as to how you kind of mitigate that because agendas have been there since the beginning. I mean, you, you referenced Tolstoy, you know, he had a political leaning when he was writing, but it doesn't seem like it's had the same toxic impact like it is when people with a political agenda or a social agenda get on these social media platforms and then the algorithms then serve that in an emotional way. Well, yeah. So the algorithms become very, they're like heat seeking missiles that seek not only psychological vulnerability because that leads to engagement. So you'll have like the algorithm will smell if a young person has a body image issue, then they'll bombard them with, that's why, you know, uh, Francis Hogan, who was the Facebook whistleblower talked about Instagram research that showed the increases in suicidality because the algorithms were intentionally focused on, because the algorithms feed off of emotional reactivity. That's what drives engagement. And so whether that's political reactivity or psychological reactivity, it's not nuanced or thoughtful. It doesn't live in the gray area. It lives in the black and white extremism. And so whether, again, it's political extremism or some of the psychiatric uh, stuff that I was talking about, but it's, um, you know, I had to work on the criminal case that was the youtube murder but i don't want to get into the ugly part of that case but the prosecutor called it an extremification loop that the algorithm will increase the intensity of whatever the uh, content is because eventually the person gets desensitized to that level of so if you're watching youtube videos about kitties you're going to get then more content related to that and then you're going to get five cats and ten cats because eventually you're going to get and so it, it keeps increasing the intensity, but it's an echo chamber effect. And then you feed back content and then it feeds you back to more content and then round and round until it, it, it creates this, this, um, this extreme effect. But the, uh, the, the problem, it, it's got such a predatory aspect to it because again, it smells out the person's, you know, what, what they think their leanings are. Um, 
And, and the problem in that is that the person then begins to no longer be able to think in nuance and in the grays. Um, and so I've noticed that when I work with, you know, I was a college professor for 10 years, 10 years ago. And I've now I've gone back into the classroom this last year and I've noticed the critical thinking ability of young people is shot. It's um, the ability to have a non-emotionally reactive conversation about any topic. And and in Digital Madness, I talk about this effect. It's created such a, because uh, it's an emotions economy. And so that's what's privileged. And so thoughtful discourse is now just people shouting each other on social media. And then you have the, the stereotype of the trigger warning, safe space, kind of uh, a young person who can't handle life on life's terms as they move on into the real world because they haven't had to engage in that in their social media landscape. So it's, it's, it's a problem. And some of the things that I'm working on now is there are two large legislative initiatives. Um, well, there's legislative initiatives from Congress. Uh, Gus Bilirakis, Congressman Bilirakis in Florida is working on some initiatives to put some guardrails to have parents be able to opt out of algorithm fueled social media and the other is class action lawsuits they're currently multi-state multi-law firm class action lawsuits that i'm also working with one is targeting the gaming industry and one is targeting the social media industry um and they both have uh a, they both have gotten over 100 families that have been harmed by both gaming and social media and it's a similar legal strategy as we've seen with Purdue Pharmaceuticals and OxyContin or with Big Tobacco, where you have knowingly harmed our children and now we are suing you for damages. And 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 the, the request is, you know, uh, warning labels, guardrails on the algorithms, you know, more intentionality around. Because right now, as we knew from the Facebook whistleblower, uh, Francis Hogan, they've knowingly targeted vulnerable psychological um, psychologically compromised young people they had internal emails where they were saying should we dampen down the algorithm and make it less harmful and the answer was no because that'll reduce engagement so it was a classic example of profit over people mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what the lawsuits are about now and hopefully that'll create um, a, a coming to jesus moment for some of these predatory companies yeah i love just the awareness to the darkness and um just the terrible routes that this screen addiction can take us down, I guess, because I think as parents, when we're living our day-to-day -day life, we want to do what's easy in the moment. We want to do what's easy for ourselves with our phones. We want to do what's easy for our kids, which is pacifying them. And sometimes, but we don't see all the stuff that's hidden behind the screens. And that's what I love is you dig that up and you bring it to the surface. So that's what's coming to my mind now when I'm making a decision on my child's consumption with something and, or my my consumption level, all this stuff is at play here. And it just right. looks like this happy little thing that's meant to make our lives easier, whether that's a phone or a tablet or a computer or a TV or whatever that is, and provide entertainment and relax relaxation. Well, one strategy that I have found helpful with in treating this and with my own kids, yeah. no young person, no adolescent likes to be told what to do, right? They don't want to hear mom saying no screen time or, you know, you become yes. like that Charlie Brown, wah, 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 teacher voice. Um, but what does get what does get provoke a response that can be healthy is pulling back the curtain in the way that we've talked about like a documentary like the social dilemma where some of the big tech moguls themselves talk about how 
we're manipulating and monetizing young people that they're just products and we're just using them. When you tell a young person you're being gamed, you're being played, you're being manipulated, you get oftentimes and you challenge them. Do you want to just be manipulated by these tech oligarchs? Well, okay. So if you want to be a free thinker and independent, then, you know, understand what's happening. Don't be a rebel to your parent, be a rebel to these tech companies that are manipulating you. And so giving children and usually like pre-teens and tw tweens and teens get it. So if you show them some of the research and some of the, the litigation stuff that's happening, you can get that response of, no, I don't want to be, I don't want to play this game with them. And then they want to own their own autonomy. That yeah. I found to be very effective. That yeah. makes sense. Cause I felt empowered when I just read some of the statistics, you know, that right. you've shared and you're thinking like, oh, okay, no, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to go along with this. Yeah. And kids yeah. are information driven. They, they, they consume information well. And, you know, so show them some of the stuff and they, and again, there, there's the content is out there. And what changed with the social dilemma was it was one of the first time, I mean, People like me have been saying screen time can be bad, but now it was from the voices of the people that that were having sort of a, a crisis of conscience that were saying, yep, yeah, these devices are habit forming, they're bad for you, we did it by design, oops, we feel guilty about it, and here's, here's how we did it. Um, that can be very powerful. Yeah, wow. absolutely. Well, thank you again, uh, Dr. Kadaris, for your time. In, in closing, where can we find your books? Where can people find more of your content? Uh, I'm a, we'll link everything below, but anything we can be looking forward to? Do you get out? Do you speak? Do you tour? What What is what is your life like right now that people where people can find you? Yeah, I mean, my, my books are available, unfortunately, on Amazon. you got to dance with the devil to um, <laughs> books. So my books are available on Amazon, Digital Madness and Glow Kids. I do do a lot of speaking at uh, mental health and education conferences. I have my website is uh, com, And, um, you know, I, I update my website as to different uh, things that are happening. But right now it's it's legislative initiatives. It's working with these law firms to try to affect some uh, change um, from the the things that we just talked about. So, mm. so thank you again for allowing me this opportunity to speak to both of you and to your audience about what what we need to be wary of as parents in this uh, strange new world that we're all in. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for all the work that you do and please keep on. Bye.